Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. Today we have with us a gentleman who is doing many, many different things across many asset classes, has a very, very, very wide array of experience, comes out of lending. He's a licensed builder. He's done stuff in self-storage, retail, office, uh, multifamily. So this is going to be a very interesting, it might be directionless, but that's what's going to make it interesting with this gentleman. He has done so many things. He is Charles Gao. Charles, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hey, thanks for having me. You got it. Charles, you are in a really cool town, Grand Rapids, even though I'm in Northern California, I've actually been to Grand Rapids a couple few times in the last five or six years. Uh, on unrelated business, but give me, if you will, the Charles Gao background pre real estate. Yeah, so uh, my dad was uh, in real estate. Uh, God and got me into it uh, from as, as pretty much as as young as I could possibly to get into it. Um, I did everything from you know mowing lawns, flat roofing, commercial buildings, uh, taking down overhanging limbs with a chainsaw, to translating real estate documents for my dad. You name it, pretty much I had the full gamut of experience in real estate. And so, um, you know, my dad was a very heavy owner operator. And uh, I pretty much was like, you know what? Real estate is a basically a 70, 80 hour work week job. I don't want that. I want to do nine to five. I want to have my weekends and my weeknights. And so I actually got out of real estate altogether after I went to college. And then, you know, after a while, I realized that, you know, I'm kind of a workaholic like my dad too, as well. And I was working. 60, 70 hours of work week anyways to try to get ahead at these Fortune 500 companies. And so eventually I realized, you know, if I put in even a fraction of the effort I'm putting in with these companies and doing it for myself, I'm pretty sure I could do a better off financially. So that's when I started to make that transition. I made that transition about 2007 to uh, when the real estate crash was really taking effect and I recognized there was an opportunity to buy. And then I, I kind of never looked back since then. Okay. And when your dad, you said he was a heavy owner operator, where was that? Primarily in Michigan, uh, mostly located in the Tri-City area of Michigan, so Midland Bay City, Saginaw. Okay, wow. So is that is that considered? And you know, I don't know Michigan that well, although I'm going to be there this summer. Is that Upper Peninsula or where is that? It's a uh, kind of uh, like if I were to hold up a hand of Michigan using the thumb, typical Michigander scene. I'm kind of like right in the inside of the thumb area. So okay, what it, uh, Midland is most now known well known for it's the world headquarters for Dow Chemical, the largest you know chemical company in the world. So that's also like a weird history fact, but it's also where Agent Orange uh, during the war was manufactured as well. So that That is a tidbit right there. Uh, was 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 your dad, you say owner operator, was he, uh, what asset class, a lot of apartments or what was he doing? Pretty much across the board, everything. Uh, my uh, father was, uh, he, he couldn't speak English. So he, he got a job for a woman that happened to speak Chinese, which in, in mid-Michigan was like, you know, probably a total of five people um, growing up. And uh, she um, basically had him kind of do everything possible for him. And so as she retired off over the course of 25 years, uh, she sold off her entire commercial real estate portfolio, which was pretty sizable. So we had restaurants, office, 
uh, retail, uh, multifamily, um, you name it. My dad basically acquired it from her. And he, she basically sold it all to him on land contract as well. Damn, man. That, that is impressive. And I, and I get the whole 70 to 80 hour thing. I mean, the re- restaurants alone, much less all, all the rest of that. Yo. So, oh, seven, you, you decide, you know, you're, you're working, you know, you, you wanted to just do nine to five, but you realize that's not what the Fortune 500 gigs were about anyway. And it's probably, it's probably just what, what you're not uh, into would be my guess. And so, oh, seven, you, you saw the opportunity and what was your foray? Yeah. So um, when I uh, was leaving California in 07, the crash was definitely started. But um, back in Michigan, um, I actually, um, the crash actually hit about a year, year and a half earlier. And so when we got here, there was houses because uh, my plan was actually to stop through Michigan. And when I stopped through Michigan to visit friends and family, I'm like, wow, there is real estate here where I could buy a three bedroom, one bath house for $36,000, which, you know, give you a frame of reference. My first mortgage on a house in Michigan on a three bedroom, one bath with a second floor deck uh, was $425. And I paid $417 for a parking space in downtown San Francisco. So that just gives you like, oh my God, like there's no way that this market's not going to go up. So I, I made changes to my plans. There were some other reasons around that. But um, I made changes to stay in Michigan, essentially, because like the, I knew that if, if I wanted to really build wealth in real estate, um, I needed to stay in Michigan to take advantage of the market here because it was just so depressed at the time. Hmm. Uh, well, I lived in San Francisco for many years, man. Where did you live? Um, you know, I lived all over the East Bay. So I lived in Piedmont, Oakland. Uh, I lived everywhere but Fruitvale, West Oakland. Uh, I lived in the Tenderloin, which I think they now call it the Tender Knob. The, they keep renaming it, but... That's the worst part of San Francisco. That's generally the most of the areas that I lived in was uh, more of the lower income areas because, you know, back then I was only making like 40000 a year. All right. Okay. But you wound up in Piedmont one way or another, which is the high rent district. I'm in Alameda. That's so anyway. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's not. Yeah. We won't bore our listeners further that have no idea what we're talking about. But I had to ask the question. So, yeah, you, you, you spent some time in the Bay, man. When you bought that house, right, three bedroom, one bath in Michigan, what part of Michigan was that? And then what did you do from there? Did you live in that house? Yeah. So actually, the first property I purchased was actually, now that I think about it, it actually wasn't the house. It was actually a condo. So the condo um, actually got foreclosed on for $143,000 just two years before that. I bought it for $36,000 cash. Um, and, um, oh, actually, no, so I did get financing, but I had to jump through a ton of holes to get to it because what had happened was the HOA was going bankrupt. And so it was not certifiable by the banks anymore because essentially the banks, when there is a potential that HOA is going bankrupt, the bank is worried about a HOA lien getting placed against the condo essentially. And so I bought, and so the, I bought it so cheap because the uh, Dodge was, is that, if I got to put 30, 40% down on this condo or buy it cash, why wouldn't I just take that same down payment and get a four bedroom, two bath house with the exact same down payment? And so as a result, um, that's why I, I purchased it because it was one of the few properties I could afford and I just knew that was going to go up. I didn't realize at the time, but it was a strategy where as soon as the HOA was lendable, the home value on that property uh, almost tripled within three years because of the fact that now people could buy it with 
$5,000 down or $6,000 down rather than paying it all cash. And where in Michigan was that or is that condo? Uh, that's in Grand Haven, Michigan. So right on the beach, Coast Guard City, USA. So you're like, at that point, it's just simplistic to you. It's, it has nowhere to go but up because it's only, the thing's only 36 grand. It has nowhere to go but up, correct? Yeah, I mean, like it's, uh, I mean, it, I can't remember if it was 134 or 143, but it was it was definitely six figures uh, is what it was, the value on the mortgage itself. It, it might've been bought for 143, mortgage for 134. But I mean, you think about that. When have you ever seen a perfectly move-in ready condo? I mean, all I did was paint it. Um, and then I actually, uh, there was a kind of a dip in the floor. I actually just put a rug over. And those were the only two things on that. And then my roommate who moved in was paying me, I think, five fifty a month. So he was paying for my mortgage and my utilities for me to live in my own house for free. I see. Wow, man. How did you find that condo? Was it like, uh, was it listed, or how how did you how did you find it? So um, in Grand Rapids, I think Phoenix was kind of the test site. But during the crash, what happened was is that um, the bank started holding inventory because they realized like, if we throw 3,000 foreclosures on the market right now, we're going to tank the market even more. So what the bank started doing is say, hey, you know what? Let's only put 200 HUDs on the market instead. So there was a steady flow of constant foreclosures coming on the market that would sell within a week at kind of at their price. And you really just had to pay close to or very, very close to it. Um, the, what we would, were doing actually at the time, and I got this from my, uh, my agent at the time who was a foreclosure specialist, is that there was a program called First Look. And what First Look means is that foreclosures at the time, the first 14 days, only bids from owner occupants could be accepted, meaning investors couldn't buy it. So essentially what I did is I came in like 14,000 below the purchase price. Day two, I dropped it to 13,000 below price until right before day 14, I'm like, okay, crap, I got to hurry up and give them their price before the investors flood in. And so we kept doing that because the banks weren't making decision like everything was numbers oriented. Like, yep, it meets our metric. Like, So even if it was their reserve price was 13,220 and I offered 13,219, they would say no, they wouldn't even counter because everything was just so like, uniform list is how we're going to handle all the foreclosures. And so we figured that out. So we just kept creeping the price up to make sure I could get the lowest possible reserve from the banks as possible. I see. And who's the we when you say we? Um, It was myself and then my agent, you know, kind of submitting the offers at that time, at that point in time. I see. Okay. So you're a smart guy. So then, uh, and you moved into it. So like, what did you then do from there? And, and were you living in that market? Yeah, you lived in the, you lived in that condo. Yes, you made that perfectly clear. So what did you then do from there? So uh, I, uh, I was working for uh, one of the largest banks uh, in the world at the time. Um, and I was getting promoted nonstop. And pretty much what happened was every year they were promoting me and every year they were promoting me to a different part of Michigan. So every time they did that, I use that as an excuse to buy a house. So then I buy a house in Kalamazoo, our south of Michigan, buy a house in Wyoming, Michigan. And I just kept moving with the company. And even though the lenders were kind of like, hey, we, we feel like you're kind of working the system, they really could use my exception. Like, well, you're getting relocated for work uh, over 100 miles every time. And so I just kept buying these houses with the uh, one competitive edge that I was owner-occupying them while this first look program was preventing investors from buying them before me. And then I just kept doing that, doing these house hacks. And I did a lot of it with that condo format that you talked about. Some I did it that were more heavy, like renovations, like living in one unit. 
uh, while I was sanding the floor in the next unit, you know, so I was basically working, you know, nine to five job coming home and then working another nine to five at my real estate flipping job, you know, kind of how that went. Got it. Well, when you say real estate flipping, were you, when you would then move each year, would you sell the one that you left or were you keeping them in, 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 in building up a portfolio? Um, you know, so I use, uh, you know, oddly enough, I actually use this metric, uh, pretty closely today, actually, but the metric essentially is, um, I look at a rule of cash flow related to uh, years of return. So like what that would mean is that let's say that I have a property that's cash flowing a hundred dollars a month and I could sell it today for a hundred thousand dollars. So, I mean, that that's a hundred months of cash flow. And so what happens is if that number exceeds 10 years, preferably closer to 15 years, in most cases, I will elect to actually sell it now because the thought process behind that is whether it's my residential or my commercial portfolio is that, you know, yes, I can make $6,000 off a year off of it. But if I can make $350,000 today and invest that and then compound it faster, which one should I choose to do? Now, obviously, I got factoring taxes and a number of things that way. But that's how, how I figured it in. So most of the time at that point in time, the cash flow was so darn good. Plus, I felt also that if we continue to um, allow this market to appreciate, because now, I mean, you look at today from 20 years ago, 15 years ago, well, Grand Rapids is a completely different place. We have tons of Fortune 500 investment. We have tons of international investment. We have people from moving all over the country. The metrics here are so strong. And now we actually have labor moving back in because you know uh, you have people that are renovating these houses and people are like, well, I can make more in labor than I can even in Florida or Georgia, some of these bigger markets. And so, you know, the thought process then, uh, which was pretty good, you know, was that, you know, let's just take advantage of the best opportunity and, and see what happens. So it wasn't necessarily um, you know, do one versus the other. The beautiful thing about my journey with real estate is that I up and really up until like, you know, this year, I never had to live off of my real estate earnings. Most of the time I was living off of my W-2 job and I was spinning off 15 to 20% of my W-2 job to put it back into my real estate. So my real estate company makes 40,000 a year. I take that plus another 20 and every year I just kept compounding it and compounding and compounding it until the point where it just, it just got to the point where it didn't even make sense to keep my W-2 job anymore. And that was a year ago? No, that was uh, about three and a half years ago. I actually was going to quit earlier, but uh, in the middle of COVID, uh, my company said, "Hey, stay home, work three hours of work, get your get paid your six figure job, keep all your benefits, your company car." And so I'm like, you know, I think I'll put off my retirement for another year. But um, I would say, I mean, I pretty much have been uh, pretty scaled back on W two work for the last five years now. I see. Uh, to just take a half a step back, so you you looked at things when you decided to sell. You basically looked at the cash flow and you said, hey you know what, if it takes me 15 years to generate in cash flow, what I could get right now in a sales price, overly simplistic, because yes, there's taxes there, yeah. and, and there's other factors. Then you would say, hey, I'm going to sell it because 15 years is too long. If it takes just maybe eight or 10 years, maybe I keep it. Is that roughly what you were kind of talking about? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to get too much into how I analyze residential, especially because I don't want people ask me all these residential questions when I haven't really been doing it for the last decade. But yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. I mean, not, it wasn't ne necessarily those exact numbers, but I just wanted to make sure I understood yeah. the gist of it. Okay. I get it. In terms of your, uh, before we get into the self-storage stuff, which is, that's going to be interesting in terms of your own 
portfolio now? Is it mostly residential or, you know, what kind of stuff are you doing on your own apart from the consulting stuff you're doing? There's very little residential in my portfolio. Most of the stuff in my residential portfolio performs pretty well, actually. It's just that I don't have, I, I just barely, I mean, like if you, on my, my residential portfolio, I would say I've not walked into any of my residential small multi stuff in five years. Um, Driven by, maybe yes, but I, I don't know what they look like in the inside, outside of what my management company tells me and photos I've seen on a computer. Um, you know, uh, really most of it I would say is in um, really just commercial in general, triple net, triple net healthcare, um, you name it, pretty much uh, it just it's mostly in commercial. I see. And then are you, are those, are you doing stuff just you or are they in partnership or what are the structures? Um, yeah, so it's a combination of all. I have deals where I've raised money through investors. I've had deals where I have a debt investor. I have deals where I have like a silent JV investor. I have deals I have 100% ownership of. It just kind of whatever presents itself. Um, at the very beginning, when I did deals with partners, they were generally deals that I could fund 100% myself. And so this is kind of an advice that I give to some people is that most people... They wait to raise money on their very first deal where they need the money and they normally do it on a marginal deal. And then they have all the pressure of, okay, now I'm taking down my biggest deal. I'm trying to do an investor raise and all those other things. For me, it was the exact opposite. I was like, you know what? Let's do it on this deal. It's a smaller deal. I can take it down myself. So if for some reason an investor doesn't want to invest in it, I'll still close on it. I don't have to deal with all that stress. And then on top of that too, as well, I have also leverage over my investors too that. Yes, this might be my first deal in um, an assisted living or wedding venue or storage, but if you don't want it, then that's fine. I'll go ahead and do it. And I feel a lot of times people that conundrum where they're trying to do all these things they haven't done before. And it's just not, it's not a good position to put you or your investor in, to be honest. And so my first deals were typically with uh, like a silent partner or one or two investors where... They were putting up the money. I was putting up a little bit, but not all of it. But then I was operating the deal and I was the one that was actually asset managing or creating the value. I see. And so you'd get, it'd be small. It'd be, you know, one or two guys or whatever, put up the money and you basically, you you take the deal down yourself. And I mean, not, not with the money, but you basically run the whole thing. Correct. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what is the bridge, Charles, from, from that uh, to self-storage? Yeah, so I had self-storage exposure uh, through my father um, because he had actually had a self-storage facility. Back then when we had self-storage facilities, they didn't have the technology we have now. We didn't have crazy software specific to self-storage. You were generally managing it via QuickBooks or uh, Excel spreadsheet. There really wasn't not a lot of software. But uh, kind of how I made that bridge was I was doing a, a lot in the uh, multifamily space. Um, and what happened was, is that as I was growing, I had investors that were, I was kind of selling deals I was passing over that were kind of coming right around after me or actually at the same level at that point. So I'd sell a million dollar apartment complex to them. And then all of a sudden, like a few years later, like, Hey, do you have anything in the four to $5 million range? And I was doing so much on the brokerage side that I didn't want to compete with my own clients. So I was like, you know what, why don't I just shift to an asset class? Cause I kind of wanted to get back into self-storage anyways. And then I'm just going to be solely a multifamily broker. So I don't have to compete against my clients on, on potential off-market deals. And also, I still had this super high active income of selling you know, 20 to $30 million of multifamily real estate a year. And so how I started with that is I started soliciting a lot of owners. And as I solicited these owners, you know, I would just be very forthcoming. I'm like, listen, I have this amount of experience. I'm young, I'm hungry. Um, you know, like if there's any way I can force value for you. And, and the biggest thing I always see too, as well, is that 
I didn't keep it that vague as, oh, if there's anything I can do for you, because if you don't tell people what you could do for them, they don't think of it for you. I'd actually would come up with something very specific like, hey, if you need somebody that will come out and do your lockouts for you, or hey, if you have a tenant that like calls last second and you, you don't want to drive out there Saturday at like nine o'clock at night, call me up. I'll do it for you. I'll, I'll, I'll do it for experience. I'll do it so I can be the first guy that gets the first right of refusal on your property. I'll do it because maybe you'll make me an equity owner someday, but I'll do it just with the handshake expectation that like, I believe you're a person that will act honorably. And I also will help you in the process and in a way that I can also learn as well. And so I kept doing these type of deals and then slowly got to the point where I'm like, okay, well, you know what? I won't do it for free anymore, but I'll do it for $15. And it just got to the point now where my consulting business now, we're charging roughly $1,000 to $1,800 an hour. I still will do learn it deals. Like I have a deal that I'm consulting in Bulgaria. I flat out told the, uh, the person like, this is our first deal in Europe, let alone outside of North America. I'm pretty confident I'm going to be learning a lot of things on the job that I can't necessarily give you all the advice consulting for. But I can tell you that soil drainage, it's pretty uniform how to take care of that universally. So I, I cut them a better deal. But now I can tell you now, I've learned a lot from that. Now, next time I go into Europe, I'm not going to cut somebody else the same deal. I'm going to charge them even more because I, I keep learning more and my business keeps growing. So that's kind of how I've always kind of valued my business is I always value knowledge just as, as much as I do assets itself. And that's also what's allowed me to grow too as well because I can basically provide a value at clients as partners as well. Okay. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. So let me just make sure I understood what you're saying. And so, you know, you were a, a pretty successful, active broker of multifamily. You said 20 to 30 million a year that you were transacting in, in that. And so you didn't want to compete with your own clients. Your dad was in self-storage. So that's where you had familiarity with the asset class. So is what you're saying is you then were uh, contacting, I'm assuming, local owners of self-storage. And you're just saying, hey, man, I'll do anything for you, you know, starting off for free. And, and um, you know, I just want to learn. And is that, am I, am I recapping well, that? Well, I was contacting them with the intention to buy um, for sure. But, you know, a lot of times we were dealing with mom and pops, they, they kind of want to know, like, you know, like who you are. Like, you know, like when I worked with a big box brokerage company, like I can tell you that the type of self-storage operator I was working with, they're not going to go to downtown Grand Rapids and go sit in my glass office. They're, If anything, they're going to show up with basically a coffee from Meyer or the local gas station. And we're going to walk their sites in overalls and dickies. I mean, like, so, so I understood that, you know, these owners, I could relate to them probably better than some of these brokers could. And I can make pretty good money off at the same time. So that was my process was that let's, let's do whatever we can to get me to get to my first deal. And buying is obviously my first choice, but learning more about real estate, learning more about self-storage operations, marketing or networking with guys and say, hey, you know, how'd you do this? 
learning how to build, getting their contractors out, having to connect me with other self-storage operators, anything I could do to, I don't say monetize the relationship, but to provide value to the relationship and also get value back out of it, I did. But more importantly, I always focus on if I build value for these people and I think they're a good person, they're going to give me value back. I don't need to expect it back. But I mean, generally, like I can tell you that anybody who provides value for me, I tend to go out of my way to help too as well. Like, you know, I, I help a lot of people, but there's also a lot of people I don't help because I think they're just giving, they're, they're just all take, take, take type of person. You know, we have that happen all the time. People solicit me and they're, oh yeah, I've talked to 50 investors that week. And it's like, you know, I'm not really impressed by somebody that solicited 50 investors. I'm just one of those 15 investors, you know? So I just focused on providing value. And then eventually, you know, deals started coming along my way where I could buy. And then also it made it easier to pitch every person from that point forward. Yes, I don't have self-storage operator experience or ownership experience because technically I only have that through my dad. But down the street, I manage that facility for that guy. I raise the rents 20%. I manage this facility over here. You can call these other self-storage operators, some of whom you may also know, and they'll also vouch for me as well. And that's actually how I got one of my very first deals. The self-storage owner that I was working with helped him quite a bit. He threw me a bone and sold me and got me a facility sold um, from an operator that I wasn't even on my radar. Okay. And so just to get a sense of scale, not exact, don't need exact numbers, but I mean, how many uh, facilities have you owned? Do you own? Just what's a, what's just a general idea? Yeah. So uh, right now I have uh, just about 300,000 square feet of self-storage spanning over uh, actually four facilities, but one is actually... Well, actually Two of them are actually in the process of uh, a sale right now. Um, I have really been um, expanding our consulting business. So we've built and planned over 3 million square feet across North America. And then I am working on um, three uh, eight-figure storage facility, new build constructions. Uh, and that will be you know, amongst the nicest storage facilities in, in North America right now. Uh, three different states too as well. Got it. In, in the four that you were talking about, the the, the 300, uh, how did you say 300,000? Yeah. So I, uh, I, the, the, I, the metrics I like to use for storage because, you know, but some of I can, I can own 15 facilities that are 10,000 square feet and we've been there. We own a lot of small ones, but you know, I'd rather own one really big one than five little ones. And so it's easier to just go by net rentable square foot because that gives you an idea. Like, you know, one of my facilities, I have $85,000 salary on payroll. Most facilities don't even make 85000 a year. So it just gives you an idea of the size of the facility. And, and where, is that? where are the ones that you own? Uh, the ones I own uh, that I'm uh, actual ownership, not LP or silent partner in are in Michigan. Okay. But I do have ownership in other facilities in other states. Okay. In- Which I don't count in that because I like... So So like, let's say that you came to me, said, hey, Charles, uh, I'm in uh, Alameda, California. I want to develop self-storage here on the island. I want you to consult. As I'm consulting on, a lot of times I'll see this deal. I'm like, wow, this is a good deal. And then I might actually propose to you like, hey, Roger, I'm not sure if, you'll, if you want to, but if you want to keep me on this deal for the long term or have me help with the building construction management, Instead of basically paying my consult fee, how about I take five or ten percent equity instead? So, so I have a couple of those deals like that because uh, those will work out really well for me because it's creating passive income for myself. I'm not trying to gain tons of active income, trying to gain experience and reach, uh, but also uh, like uh, you know, I, I like having mailbox money because on a deal like that, once I've trained the staff how to run it. Or once we've finished building it, you know, it's pretty passive for me at that point in time. I see. And do you help people that you consult with 
identify like, like location of a facility, where to put it? That is probably a top three popular question to get. And the answer is yes, if you're willing to pay for it. Most people want to say, hey, will you, if I pay you $5,000, will you find me a city? And unfortunately, I don't know how much time it's going to take me to find a city. It could take me $3,000 research. It could take me $10,000 of research. Um, so we don't do that. Uh, essentially, what we do is we do feasibilities. Uh, we teach a feasibility class live. And then actually, uh, by the end of this month, I actually just got an email from my editor. We will be launching a course for $9.95 that will teach you how to do your own feasibility study analysis. It'll teach you how to do the quick analysis for identifying market to how to do a full-blown feasibility study for a uh, property you're going to take to investors or to the bank. I see. What is involved, and I'm sure this is, you know, you're obviously selling a course, so there's not a short answer to this question, but you could do with it what you want, is what what is involved in determining feasibility? Yeah, so feasibility is, is really three steps. The first step that everybody looks at is the amount of square foot of storage needed in the market. That is actually the least important metric, but it's the one people to pay attention to the most. The second metric is basically what type of storage, whether it's climate control, non-climate control drive up, and also the unit combination. And the third, which is the most important, it's the one that people actually never pay attention to in most cases, is at what price can I build that to be profitable? And can I make money on this? I can tell you that there's there's thousands of locations that need self-storage on paper, but what you would get for rent in that market for what you could build at does not make sense to build. And that is the biggest problem I run into when people do feasibility is they don't look at, is this a profitable market for me? Like, I mean, I can go to many places and say like, hey, Alaska, yes, they need probably more housing in certain parts of Alaska, but does it make sense with the cost of me building? Because I got to take an excavator across, you know, frozen tundra to get there and things like that. So that, that's a concept that people often overlook that we typically help uh, really focus on in that aspect. I see. And Charles, is what, what percentage of your consulting is with people that are doing ground up versus people that are acquiring existing properties? Uh, I would say it's very rare that we do any consulting with somebody that is not doing some type of expansion or ground up. I'm a licensed builder and also I worked in commercial lending for a number of years. So knowing what the bank is going to ask for um, that's what I feel I provide a lot of value. That and also because as our company has grown bigger, we are actually starting to outsource our management. So yes, we are capable of doing that. Um, and uh, but I would say that um, in general, if we do anything operations-based, it's in addition to some type of consulting for either feasibility, uh, site planning, or building construction management. A good example of where we provide a lot of value to somebody is that... Um, I always see this as like, do you want to pay me or do you want to pay your engineers and excavators? It doesn't matter. You're going to pay it more than likely anyways. But like, let's say that you came to me and you said, hey, I have this site. I want to build self-storage. The most common thing somebody will do is they'll give this to a site engineer and just say, hey, give me as much storage as possible on this site and then work around the drainage plan. And so then the engineer comes back and gives it to them. He's like, okay, here, this, here you go. Here's the site plan. This costs $3,000. And then what happens is they go and shop it to the steel company they go and shop it to the excavator or then they get a feasibility study analysis done and they're like, oh shoot, these type of buildings don't give me the type of units that are going to maximize my money. Or these type of buildings are more expensive than if I build it this way and I can get 20% savings. So then you're like, well, shoot, do I want to go back to the engineer, waste two months, redraw the plans? Or 
do you want to hire somebody like me where I go in right now, I know what the banks are going to say, I know what the best layouts because we built so many, I know the best layouts for lowering costs. And then you pay me two to $5,000 or do you want to pay the engineer two or three times to keep editing something because you don't know what you're doing, you don't know how to advise them and then you're paying them $500,000 an hour. So most of the time when people say that's expensive, what they're really saying is that I don't know what your services are really going to save me. Uh, at least that's how I look at it personally. So um, bird's eye view question is you, you, you've you had, I mean, since you were a kid, you've had um, kind of access and experience in, in so many different facets of real estate. Like I said, you're a licensed builder, you were in commercial lending, you know, you kind of were pretty observant watching what your dad did across numerous asset classes. Why is it that you've identified self-storage kind of is the focus now? Um, you know, self-storage, you know, th- I get this question. I think this is probably really the more the question you ask is, is self-storage asset class that I prefer to other asset classes. And this is going to surprise a lot of people, but self-storage asset class is not my preference. It's I've just happened to have a skill set to identify those opportunities, which kind of gravitates me towards that. But the other thing about it too as well is that all my uh, asset classes I've involved in, most of them are in West Michigan I'm an operator in because I feel I have an unfair advantage. I know all the council people. I know the builders in the area. I can use my excavators willers to build multifamily, assisted living, a retail office or whatnot. So those are kind of the things I want. And in West Michigan, I felt we have a, had a significant shortage of self-storage. So in my market, I felt self-storage was a, a value add. If I were to go to Austin, Texas or Dallas, Texas, self-storage would not have been my choice there. So I hope that kind of answers your question in that sense. Yeah, it sounds like it started from you identified the need in the area where you're active as, a, as, a, as an operator. And that's where the opportunity was. Uh, which is kind of a rational, dispassionate, you know, assessment on your part. So then, as you then you realize when well, you can you develop the skill set because of that, and then you saw the opportunity to add value on a national basis from something you really mastered on a local basis. Is that correct? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So so here's a question. So what is your favorite asset class then? It's uh, whatever makes me the most money at that point in time. <laughs> uh, just just like uh, working in multiple sales roles through my life, uh, you're only good as your performance of your last month. Um, you know, like I really like triple net lease right now, especially healthcare, because I feel it's the most recession is it asset class uh, right now in this market, um, which surprised a lot of people see that with self storage. Um, but um, I uh, self storage is definitely a top three of, as far as my favorites. But it really comes down to the opportunity, like. If I can buy self-storage at eight cap on a 100,000 square foot facility, then I'm probably going to like that. Then if I'm looking at multifamily, you know, at a six and a half cap, that requires steep value add. So, you know, the biggest thing I'm looking at is return on time. And for me right now, um, while we know that we can make a good amount of money and good cash and cash return on self-storage buying like sub 20,000, sub 30,000 square foot facilities, in those cases, a lot of times we have to manage those in-house. Um, so now we are migrating towards much larger assets where we can use third-party management. I can solely focus on what I do best, which is basically building quality facilities very cheaply. Um, and then also leveraging uh, you know, our investor pool while then we can leverage somebody else on the operations. Because you know our company historically has had three secret sauces. One, we source the deal directly. So a lot of people source through brokers. Brokers want to get a higher price point. So they're not vertically in line because they want to sell you a property for more because they get bigger commission. 
So that was one form of secret sauce. Number two was I handled the building construction management and the asset management of house. So rather than charging $250,000 on a new build, I could basically waive that fee and then I could use that for more equity. So I was vertically aligned with the company and the investors on top of that because of that. And then the third thing was basically our kind of like our in-house management with managing the back end as well as brokerage. So the, those were the three sources. But what I'm finding is as we grow, I don't need all three, let alone it's difficult to have the time to do all three. So the one that we're outsourcing right now um, is uh, the um, third-party management. So we can focus on doing the other two as efficiently as possible. I see. Uh, does it get uh, challenging or frustrating sometimes dealing with third-party management given like your like uh, knowledge of how it's supposed to be done? Oh yeah, for certain. I, I think the biggest thing is that when anytime somebody goes with management, I would really look at what do you think that management costs on an hourly basis and what do you think your time is worth? And so I'll give you an example. Like I have some small multi-residential properties. They're they're making infinite cash and cash return right now because I've gotten all my cash back on it, making you know, anywhere between six hundred thousand dollars an hour or a month. But every once in a while, I might have a property where, hey, so-and-so happened. They make me a call and I spend, have to spend 20 or 30 minutes on that. Well, that, that 20 or 30 minutes I had to spend on that property that month, that ate up my cash flow for the whole entire month because of my time. But you know, but at the same time, like uh, for the most part, outsourced property management makes because property management charges me $50 to $60 an hour. That's fine. If I have to run over to the house and turn on a breaker, I've lost $1,000 already or $2,000 or whatever. So I, I always really say that the reason why it becomes an issue for most people um, is obviously mismanagement, but I think it's because the value of their time versus the value of the management company. If you can do it cheaper than the management company can do it, then you need a factor in then like, well, I need my time to become so valuable that it makes sense to manage that management company. For me, in almost every case, it makes sense for me to get management elsewhere because my time has become so valuable that it doesn't make sense for me to do it myself or do in-house or try to put systems in place. Because yes, I can put a system in place to managing a house, but then that also takes a significant amount of time as well. So that's really my considerations for management. The other thing is self-storage, and I've talked about quite frankly, is that um, if you buy a multifamily, let's say I buy Cameron Oaks Apartments. When I buy that and I rebrand it, I might call it Twin Oaks Apartments. I'm rebranding and there's really not a lot of goodwill that comes with the brand of the apartment complex. Maybe if it's like full service or super high end. In self-storage, that's not the case. In self-storage, when I go with extra space in public, I'm not naming it Charles Gow Storage and then managed by Extra Space Storage. Extra Space and Public are actually the name on the side of the building. And then I'm leveraging their SEO. I'm leveraging all the, all of theirs. So it's a significantly different because they might charge me $6,000 in marketing. But for me, the same exposure of SEO and web placement, I might just spend twice as much because I have to compete now with one of the three or four largest companies in the, um, you know, in the world for self-storage. And they've obviously have a million dollar marketing budget. So in that sense, people don't realize that there's there's value there. But I don't want to try to replicate that. I don't want to try to compete with the X space or public on spending twenty, thirty thousand dollars in marketing dollars in these very competitive markets. So that's a consideration you also have to make. So you use those guys to manage some of your properties? We I don't want to like get too too much in this, uh, but uh, we do not utilize a lot of middle management because at that point in time, 
middle of management then is also trying to compete with trying to get to the level of extra space or public or one of the or cube smart. So in general, that's what we're targeting or we're just keeping it in-house. I see. What would you say across everything you've done, what would you say are key lessons you've learned just broadly? Not even as it pertains specifically to self-storage or it could be, but how would you just answer the question generally? You know, I, I uh, one of the nice things about my investment journey in real estate is that I never had to kill what I had to eat. And basically what that means is that I never had to get a deal done because I needed to uh, use it to feed the food of my family. I could always do things that like, you know, were if, if there was anything that was like remotely fishy about something, I'm like, you know, I don't have to do it. I run into too many times where people have to do real estate deals because they need to fund something or, you know, that. And so for me, it allowed me to just focus on providing value for others. And then slowly as I grew my business, I grew that value for others. It got to the point where they were either like giving me equity on deals or they were bringing me on partners on deals where I didn't even really think that like, oh, wow, you want to partner with me? Your net worth is a hundred times more than that. You want to do that? So honestly, that's the biggest lesson I've learned is, you know, providing value for others. And it got an even simpler breakdown is value somebody else's time at what they believe it's worth, not what I think it's worth. Oh man, nobody's ever said that on the show. Uh, fantastic. Charles, if if someone were to want to hire you as a consultant or engage with you in any way, find out more about you, talk, whatever the heck it would be, what would be the best way you would prefer for them to do that? Yeah, so on uh, YouTube, uh, at Twinos Capital, if you want to learn about self-storage, that's where I go to. Um, if you want us to do a video or you want to reach out to us, more importantly, I say this, that um, if you want free stuff, that's where you go. If you want to pay me for education or pay me to talk to me, um, then you can email us at info at twinoakscap.com. I will tell you that 90% of the inquiries, they ask me something that I put on that channel. And most of the time, I flat out ignore them. <laughs> I'm not going to deal with somebody that is too lazy to watch a five-minute video to ask me a question I've answered five or six times in the videos. So I would uh, just flat out say, if you really are serious about self-storage, if you can't commit a few hours to learning from our self-storage channel because it's great information, uh, you were not a client of ours. It just doesn't make sense because you're not going to value at our time at what we believe it's worth. And you probably don't value your own time at that sense as well. All right. Words of wisdom, Charles. I look forward to uh, being in touch with you and uh, perhaps doing this again uh, in a year or so. Cool. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you soon. 